vague preferences, and uh, the vagueness was given by grades, a uh, finite set of grades which were completely preordered. Zero precisely is very difficult. I mean, I, uh, if I were didn't study things like this, I, I mean, you know, right away, knowing that you're going to sum the points means that you're going to think about exaggerating, and, and you're you're immediately set upon thinking about comparisons. And it's a very complicated problem. It's not it's not easy. And I think, on the contrary, precisely because there were words that were familiar to everybody, that that they did not find difficult to do. To think, to say, this man, to say that a candidate will be either excellent, very good, good, or whatever, that is a much easier task than to assign a two, a one, or a zero, I think. But now, of course, this is something we're going to have to prove uh, in practice. Uh, but we did this, you know, I agree that in, in Orsay is generally considered a, a, a sort of a commuting town with uh, people working at the Atomic Energy Commission, Technique, and so on. But there are all, there's also a working class district in town, and that was one of the districts. Uh, because, and we did this with the mayor of the town. We chose the three with her, woman, uh, and uh, you know, that was deliberately done in that way to see what would, would happen. And same behavior or anything. And last thing, it's true, we uh, did this, actually this, the idea was to do an experiment with approval voting in, in uh, 1995, but uh, we were too late to get this, so we went ahead in 2002, and I have to say that it was after that experiment that uh, all approval voting seemed very attractive to me before, but um, I, I, both Hadai and I started discussing this, we came to the conclusion now this is a really very poor method, and not at all. Well, first thing I'm going to do then is quickly, I'm going to go over a couple of little things, so just to make sure that we are all remember everything that, that uh, is involved here. Here is the ballot and everybody, each candidate was supposed to be uh, evaluated. Here were the results. We then read the majority grade, that is the median grade, so by whom Royal and Sarkozy were the, each were graded good by the electorate and so on down the line. And here are the results. I won't, uh, um, well, maybe I should quickly read, just remind you, just so that, uh, uh, make sure that we're all on board here. Uh, a good 
by who has a good plus because the number of his grades higher than the majority grade, 44.3, is larger than the percentage lower than the majority grade. And Royal is good minus because it's the opposite way. Royal is ahead of Sarkozy because they're both minuses, and you look at the minus, at the bad side, and you see that it weighs more heavily down on the bad side on Sarkozy because the lower the majority grades are almost 47% to Royal's 41.5, and it goes in the opposite thing for two people with a same majority grade plus. So there's also no and Buffet. Uh, is also known as the head of the Fed because uh, his higher than majority grades are higher than hers. And as uh, Adan said the other day, theorem, this uh, majority gauge, as defined here, agrees with the theoretical majority ranking, which is always distinguishes between two candidates unless they have exactly the same set of grades. But this will always be good enough. We had another definition which is more symmetric for which this was not true. And also we have studied other quote-unquote tie-breaking rules based on T-alpha Q uh, and studied them to see what they might give. They don't seem to be as good in our opinion, so we, we discuss them and they'll be described in our book, but we're not today. looking at them very much enough. Again, there were 2,360 people who voted fish officially, 1,752 participated in the experiment, 19 of the ballots were invalid, and just so you know, there were Essentially, you know, a little bit under 600 or thereabouts in each of the districts, so they're more or less of equal weights from the point of view of the uh, people in Egypt. Uh, so those are those those three numbers add up to the 1,700. So the point then is that this, what does this do? Because we can look at ballots and we can study what the behavior of other methods might be by making the following assumption that if there is a ballot and uh, Rudy and Rida are the two candidates and on this ballot Rudy is above um, Rida in that case he is assigned one vote and Rida is assigned zero if they were head to head and if they were both given the same grade then each of them is given a half so that's the way, that was the rule that we used in order to uh, deduce how a ballot would be counted. You know, how would that person presumably have voted given the vote notes, the, the grades they gave? So if you wish, we gave a half-half probability that it gone one way or the other. Now, one um, thing is we wish to emphasize is that uh, in Orsay, these three bureaus, the three uh, precincts of Orsay, uh, the votes were not the same as nationally. Nationally, 
Baihu had 18.6%. In the three bureaus of offset, he was way up, 25.5%. Le Pen was quite down, as you can see, and Sarkozy, well, Royal was above and Sarkozy was below, but it was really quite a difference. As for the other candidates, the difference between them was, between the two, you know, the three in offset and the national, when you made the difference in the percentages, they were always less than 1%. Okay? So we have chosen, because we felt that it would be more interesting to do the thing on the basis of something that could be compared to the national totals, we randomly selected a database of 501, which are quote-unquote representative of France, and here is, in red, are the three candidates who, of course, are the most important here in all of the experiments, and you see, well, the sample is really very, very close to the national percentages. Le Pen is a little bit down. The reason we're putting down Besançon and Boisnet is that they're the ones for which there was the biggest difference. Otherwise, the differences were much smaller. Second thing to say is we were very happy to see that, you know, one can ask a quote-unquote validation of the supposition to see, or the experiment, if you wish, let's say the experiment, is to ask, well, what actually did happen in the second round? And, of course, the only two you can know about this are Royal and Sarkozy. And here is what happened. In red is what was predicted by us. Didn't do this. That is, using the reasoning I just described before, what would happen between two, we asked what would have happened between simply only Royal and Sarkozy. And our result was Royal would beat Sarkozy with 52.3% of the vote. And what happened was that Royal beat him with 51.3% of the vote. So there was a 1% difference. One has to say there was a two-week interval between the two, and there was a debate where quite clearly, I think, Sarkozy dominated Royal. But still, as far as concerned, if you compare this with polls, it's quite good. And you can do this in each of the districts, and you see that there are differences, especially the first as compared to the next two, and you have exactly the same behavior. It's basically within a percentage point. So somehow this is comforting from the point of view of the reasonableness of the expressions that were given on these facts. Now, here's the entire estimate from that point of view of all the candidates, and they're listed in the order of Condorcet. That is, the numbers here, for example, if you take Baihu in the first line and then say take Royal in the first number, there's 56. That's saying that according to that, Baihu would have beaten Royal with 56% of the vote. 
Okay? Now, the order is such that you will notice that above the main diagonal, everything up to the left, uh, right top corner, all those numbers are higher than 50%. So, this means that in fact, this ordering is the Condorcet order. There is no Condorcet cycle. Everything is, uh, goes exactly that way. So now we can of course ask, well, how does this compare with what happens with Borda and the majority judgment? And you'll, as you can see, the first eight, exactly the same. The only difference comes, well, it's in red at the bottom. I have to look. Uh, from Borda differs from Condorcet in just the last two, and the majority judgment differs only in the ninth and tenth places here. And otherwise, it's uh, all of this gives you. It's it's, it's quite uh, robust from this point of view. Now, I'm just going to repeat this slide because from the other day, I think it's extremely important. I think it's one of the most important findings of this uh, of this experiment, and that is that 11% of the ballots had at least two excellence. 16% had at least two very goods and no excellent. 6% at least two goods and no better grade. That is, a third of the voters refused to single out one preferred candidate according to grades. That is a first reason, in our opinion, to say the current methods of voting and the notion of just a rank order in the voting are no good, and they do not they do not conform with the reality. This is not the way people want to vote. They are prepared to say two people are equivalent. And we don't commit it, either in theory, first, or, or in practice. Second point is, rankings carry very different meanings, and this is shown by this table where you look at the distribution of the highest grade, the second highest grade, the third highest grade, and one sees these distributions are completely different. So where, you know, putting somebody in second position means very different things to people, or first position, or any position. And this freedom should be given. Thus, you know, conclusion, input messages that are voters' rank orders are meaningless. Okay, now we come to, uh, you know, this very important uh, notion of common language, and uh, I would like to um, begin by saying that in some sense we came on this because as we started to look at wine competitions, skating competitions, diving competition. Now look, what's happening in all these competitions? It's not a 100-yard uh, dash where you measure by time. There's a physical measurement. These, there are appreciations. How, how well the performance was done. How well the how good the dive was. How good the wine was. Uh, and people differ. But, in all of those applications, people used a language of numbers. And when you get a 
diving judge who says that, you know, double flip, backward, whatever it is, is worth, there they use a 10-point scale. They go from 0 to 10 in quarter points. They say that was an 875. And Viga says, hell, it was. It was a 925. But we know what those numbers meant. That is, the judges, you know what they mean by those numbers. And they, you know, they, they become expert uh, judges. And there are regulations which define what these numbers are supposed to mean. Now, I'm going to give you a different language just to try to persuade you about this. And this language is a 12-word language. 1, 2, 3, 12. It is the Mercalli intensity scale. And this intensity scale is to measure the destructive power of an earthquake. Now, that's a different thing from the Richter scale. The Richter scale measures the amount of energy released. But that is not the only measure of, the only uh, variable in determining damage. Damage, you can have a less intense earthquake, but it's of a different type, which shakes laterally than, rather than, you know, don't ask me exactly the details because I'm not an expert about that. But apparently it's quite different. And therefore, this scale has been developed. Now, I've just, I want everything to stay on a single slide. So, uh, 2, 3 is emitted, uh, 8 is emitted, and so on. But it, it, this, I think, will give you the flavor of the thing. You see, 1, not felt except by very few under especially favorable conditions. Okay? Felt indoors by many, outdoors by few during the day. At night, some awaken. Dishes, windows, doors disturbed. Walls make cracking sounds. Well, these are descriptions, right? They could be um, definitions of words in a dictionary. Six, felt by all, many frightened, and so on. It, there's real meaning attached to these numbers. Here is, therefore, an example of a common language of measurement. Right? Now, of course, uh, does it make sense to add 1 and 6 to get 7? Well, obviously not. It's got nothing to do And this gets us to what people do in so-called measurement. Measurement theory, there's, there are various people classify these in different ways. This is the classification due to S.S. Stevens. Tukey and Mosteller have another uh, but it comes to sort of more or less the same thing. And I think, actually, this is more... Um, uh, I find this a, a clearer way of saying it than, than uh, Tukey's way of doing it. Well, and the four types of this is, first of all, nominal. The meaningful comparisons are simply the same and different. So, uh, Rudy's famous bus number 168... Uh, you know, which is bus number 168 is versus bus 123. Um, <coughs> telephone code of the country, the zip code, whatever. The next up, so to speak, more sophisticated thing is an ordinal measure. And here the meaningful comparisons are equality, the same, or above or below. So here, uh, the letter grades on the students' exams, 
There's a Mohs scale of mineral hardness, which is quite, I don't know if any of you know this, but it's a thing where you scratch with, I've forgotten if you scratch with gum, you use something to scratch, and with the nature of the scratch, this is, and you can somehow establish a hierarchy. Well, the modified Mercalli intensity scale for earthquakes, and another very interesting application in which maybe you have been asked, I don't know, a doctor, you're in pain, and the doctor says, how much do you hurt on a zero to ten scale? Well, we maintain this is nonsense. You know, come back to Mercalli, it would be nonsense, where is this on a zero to ten scale? I mean, especially with an individual. Well, that depends on a lot of things. However, now people are trying to hone in on defining these different intensities of scale with descriptions, like the Mercalli descriptions, having to do with fever, headaches, being able to stand it, being able to sleep, you know, there are all kinds of descriptions that go, and some are quite detailed, some are shorter, and one of the interesting ones is, and I wish I was, I didn't know how to take it off the computer, but is faces, and this is used with children, where you have a face in total repose at one end of the scale, and you have a face at the other end, which is really in despair, and there are various gradations, of course, very stylized drawings, and the idea is to use this to try to elicit the amount of pain that is being felt by the child. So those are ordinal measures. Now, an interval measure, everything that's true for comparisons and ordinal comparisons is there, but now you're allowed to add or take averages, subtract them. So here, examples are calendars, Fahrenheit, temperature, there's no zero. Zero is not natural yet, it's just, but you add an extra day, a day here that it's in 1900 as versus 2010, it's, the days, the length is the same. In the Hebrew calendar, there is a zero. Okay, but it's not an absolute zero, because there was a year before, okay. And, but the point here is, and I should have put this in red, equal intervals have the same meaning. And finally, there's ratio measure. Now, that's price, length, mass, Kelvin temperature. There is a zero. Now you can multiply, also. And so here are somehow the four things. Now the measure theorists, they talk about two principal problems. The first is the representation problem. How to assign scale values to empirical observations. The first problem. Second problem is the meaningfulness problem. What analyses and statements about empirical observations can be made that are meaningful given the type you're looking at? And of course, the point is here is that the statisticians want to take averages and do all that kind of thing. But is it valid? Well, with a Mercalli scale, it sure is not valid, right? Take an average, it doesn't make any sense. There is, you cannot add. All you can do is compare. 
common languages of grading are ordinal measures. Now we'll come back to uh, so A, B, C, D is ordinal, but zero to hundred is also now why in some sense why is why should we say it is not an interval? Can it be made into an interval measure? Well, the problem with a zero to hundred or a zero to twenty, whatever you do in your country, is that. But let's stick with zero to hundred because it's more graphic. If you to go from a ninety-seven to a ninety-eight is a much harder job ordinarily than it is to go from a fifty-six to a fifty-seven. Think of American you know, exams where you grade. You say you give a grade over hundred. Well. 56 and 57, there's no difference. 97, 98, I mean, you're, that's a big, much bigger jump. So it's not an interval measure. It isn't... Uh, those, that extra point does not mean the same thing. So, formally, a scale is a set of functions from a set which is to be measured, x, into the real numbers. And, okay... And each element, each function here, is a representation of a scale. And a scale is an ordinary scale if for every function the range of P, the function, is an interval of reals and the whole set is related to itself and how, it's simply taking one of the functions and transforming it into another by a strictly monotonic transformation. That is that it's, you know, you're not... Uh, how do I say order preserved. Order preserved, thank you. It is order preserved, right. Now, an interval scale is described in the following way. If for every such function, how are they related? They're related in this linear way. So adding, subtracting, all that makes sense here. And a ratio scale is still more, you just have related by a strictly linear transformation. And the idea is that if something is claimed for an attribute that is measured by a particular representation of the scale, then it should be meaningful if the same claim is true measured by any of the other representations. So somehow that, this is the basic notion of, of, uh, of measurement. And of course, notice now that as we look at school systems, for example, different grades, different number of grades are not related by a simple transformation, simple linear transformation. A school grade of 10 in France on a scale of 0 to 20 has nothing to do with the meaning of the 50 on the 0 to 100 scale in the United States. I it, the 10 in France would mean, I don't know, 65 in the United States. That is, a 10 is passing grade. Uh, a 50 is, is, is a failing grade in, in the US. So it's really quite different. Yet the particular scale should somehow make no difference in the ultimate outcome. So how do we formalize this? Well, we will <coughs> say that an aggregation function Remember, aggregation functions in our setup are uh, the social grading functions, but it's the one that it's used to evaluate each 
candidate or each competitor. And it is always the same, of course. You use it and you apply it to everybody. So we'll say that it is language consistent if what is true. Well, F is our aggregation function, is if you transform the grades R1, Rn of some candidate by phi, where phi is any increase in continuous function, because why? We're dealing with ordinal measures. Then we want to get the same result translated into the new language. The old language was R1, Rn, and now we're going to translate it into new language and we want to get the same result. And theorem, the unique language consistent social grading functions or aggregation functions are the ones we've been describing all along. And I recall, remember, the function that associates to a set of grades the kth highest grade is the kth order function, and the majority grade is the lower middlemost, meaning that if there's an even number, you go to the middle interval and you go to the one that's lower. Now, furthermore, what we want is order consistency. That is, that if R, the candidate with R, grades R, is ranked at least as high as the candidates with grade S, then with another representation, we want the same result. Theorem, the unique aggregation functions or social grading functions that are order consistent are the order functions. Now, let's look at point summing methods. Point summing methods are aggregation functions in our setup. In order to make any sense of point summing methods, we must be dealing with an interval. Otherwise, it makes no sense. Otherwise, just adding the 0, 1, 2 in the experiment, in some deep sense, this is maybe the problem that those voters had. I don't think they were thinking about measurement theory, but they might have been thinking about measurement. And so you're disarmed, because the only way for this to make sense is that adding an extra point means the same thing. As you go from 0 to 1, it means the same thing as going from 1 to 2. And of course, well... I think even with 0, 1, 2, people will think that 2 is... I like 2 times than the one I give, to which I give 1. But sometimes you think... Well, and in some sense... I don't know. But in some sense... In some sense, giving 2... I mean, you are giving twice, literally, because you're kind of... It's being called 2 times. So something is going on. But, you know... Anyhow, this is totally impossible for various reasons, which we'll show in a moment. So, our measurement competitors to compare depends crucially, not just in absolute setup, on the common language used in assigning the grades. On the other hand, if each judge will use his own language, what does that mean? It means that the only thing that is left that can be compared are orders. Go back to language. And so, 
Here, one would be asking for preference consistency in the following way. In this setup, when they do not have common language, we want R, suppose R is ranked ahead of S, but now each judge has his own sense of this language. So we're going to have to transfer, each judge will be transforming, will be according to his own transformation function, phi, representation of the notes. So he's got his phi1 and judge N has phi N. So then this is what we would be looking for. That is that if F of R is greater than F of S, then F of phi of the R's should be greater than F of phi of the S's. Well, there exists none, and that's error. So error's impossibility here has a very, it's not exactly error, but it really is a total spirit of error. Okay, now let's look at it. Here is an interval measure. This is Denmark's new seven-point grading number language introduced in 2006 in order to conform with various European claims. I don't know what they are, but the interesting aspect, these are their descriptions. So there are one, two, three, four, five passing grades. They are 12, 10, 7, 4, 2, and 0. Notice just as with the Macaulay system, they have descriptions. First they say the 12 is an A. None of this is invented by us. All of this is just taken, these are facts. They gave, it's an A, a B, a C, a D, and E. And then the others are failing. And then they give these descriptions. Outstanding, no or few unconsiderable flaws, 10% of passing students. Second, excellent, few considerable flaws, 25% of passing students. Good is the next, numerous flaws, 30%. Fair, numerous considerable flaws, 25% of passing students. And then adequate, the minimum acceptable, which would be 10% of passing students. And then here they don't give... I don't understand the percentages. You're taught, you know, by grading, giving grades according to... It's not a bad shape, necessarily. And they have a polytechnic, a class of complete fools. This is... Here we're talking about lots of students, hundreds and hundreds of students. And in some sense, they want this to mean that there'll be about 10% in that top class, in that top category. 25 in this one, and about 30 in this one. So it's grading to a curve. A curve is not a curve. It's probably a distribution, very vaguely defined, discrete. That's the same as the British system. They do it in single. They don't really need to give an A 50% of the time. They don't give it 50%, they give 25 or 25. That's the same as the British system. Give a talk, and then we'll discuss. Okay. 
These are just observations. Now, the question you can ask is, what's the underlying idea? Well, look, they go from two, the passing grades go from two to 12. So let's look at this interval two to 12. And pose the question, which of the five passing grades should be assigned to 5.7? You take an exam, you have a lot of questions on it, you grade it, and you say it's a 5.7 on some uniform scale. Well, presumably, the one grade that is closest to 5.7, maybe in this case, will be a seven or a good. So in fact, what they've done is they've taken the interval, they've partitioned it into intervals where here, this will be a two or an adequate, this will be before or a fair, this will be a seven or a good, and so on, up to the top. But how have they done it? Look what these intervals occupy. They occupy here 10%, here 25%, here 30%, et cetera. So this seems to be exactly what they did. And I add, we didn't see this described anywhere. We looked at this study, didn't discover that this is, here's the explanation. Now, the question, of course, is can you always do this? Well, what's the setup? Suppose we want to assign K grades, in this case it was five, to be given with a certain distribution. Okay, in that case, define QI to be that sum, this sort of alternating sum of these percentages. Theorem, there exist number grades that constitute an interval measure for the percentage distribution P1 to PK, if and only if this max-min inequality is satisfied. Now, so maybe it can be satisfied. And here's an example. Suppose the Danes had not said, I forgot the exact 10, 25, 30, et cetera. They said 10, 19, 42, 19, 10. Then the Q, let's see, the Q even, I guess, is it even? Yeah, the Q, oh, here are the Qs, Q1, Q2, Q3, and so on, up to Q5. So we get the result that the maximum of minus 9 and 14 is 14, and the minimum of the other is 10. That's false. There is no interval measure for this prescription of the percentages. Okay? There can be no interval measure for voting in large elections. First, why? Because there's an assumption that somehow that can be, and that is that we have lots and lots of students, and somehow we're treating them all in the same way, but in an election, we can have some very good candidates, or we can have very mixed candidates, or we can have very poor candidates, and so on. Okay? Thank you. 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 Thank
poor candidates, and these are going to have completely different reactions, you're never going to get an Now, okay, so that, in some sense, uh, uh, we'll go back to, to now to our experiment. Um, and first of all, I'll show you this same table that I uh, gave you on a couple of days ago, just to show that uh, voters use these words in the same percentages. They use them, therefore, with the same frequencies. Okay? Now, we'd like to be able to say this is meaning that they have a common sense of what they mean. Now, that's against, this is, this is a very subtle, and people here are making is very aware of this, is a very subtle problem here. But, I, I mean, I, uh, and, and I think we really have to study it with great care, but I do feel that, yes, uh, th there is something, uh, you know, firm about this. Uh, there it, this there's, there's no reason for this to have happened uh, just like that, because, in particular, uh, the majority judgment was not the same in all three precincts. But look, in these three bureaus, these numbers are almost the same. There, they're the same. There, one, two, one, two, one, four, one, five, one, four, one, six, etc. Extremely, extremely similar. Here, these were taking samples of 100 out of all 1,733 ballots. And what were we getting here? Average of 0.7, 1.2, 1.5. 1, 8, 2, 3, and 4, 5. So you see it's almost exactly what we got here. Then we took discrete disjoint samples of 50, and you get the same behavior. So there's something very regular going on. And now, uh, this we cannot go into. This would take several, perhaps at least an hour, to describe uh, correctly. We've done very extensive analyses to, uh, to prove this in a much more... Uh, solid way uh, to show that really they did use things in the same way. Collectively, not individually. Yes, well, of course. Uh, individually, you can't. And it's, if you come down to taking three voters at a time, samples, a lot of things are going to go over. So that's, this is one of, the, one of the problems of trying to analyze the thing to decide how do you, how do you somehow circumvent this difficulty. Okay? And we, we have an approach that we feel does circumvent that difficulty. Can I have just one Take someone from the right, someone from the left. We cannot use the language in the same manner because uh, so should think could be studied only collectively in this framework. Right. Now here, this is this is now just simply this is the same thing, but in much greater detail. This is what, for example, let's just I put one in red. You know. If we would like to have these three numbers be the same, what do they say? They say that good was used uh, in the first voting district I'm sorry, number of times? Three times. 
How many times did it was used? It was used three, that's right. It's a number of times good was used in the first district. 11.4. For three of the candidates. Yes. Right, three, gave three goods. Okay. And in the sixth, it was 10.1. And in the twelfth, it was 12.0. Okay. So, I mean, there was incredible regularity. Any single column of three numbers in this table, we would like to say, I mean, if we would love to say, geez, they're exactly the same. Well, you know, in some sense they are. They're very, very close to each other. So, this is simply a reflection in more detail of what we're talking about. I mean, you could, there's no point in looking at the individual numbers, but if you just peruse this, you see that they're almost, they really are very, very similar. So, I'll stop with that chapter. Now, approval voting. Well, what does it do? It allows each voter to cast as many votes as he or she wishes, but at most one per candidate. So, you name any number of candidates you'd like. And in some sense, the reason it's called approval, each voter either approves of a candidate by giving him or her one vote, or disapproves by giving none. And the winner is the candidate with the most votes. So, people have said, well, approval voting, and it's true, one can look at this as a special case of the majority judgment, where the common language consists of two words. But then, it has to, these words have to mean something well defined, like the mortality scale, like the pains, like everything else. But as practiced, as presented, as analyzed, and as conceived, no words have ever been defined or used. Consequence of this is that implicitly, the vote is relative, and not absolute, and of course that buys all the problems. And secondly, in particular, it invites strategic voting. And because of this, it can lead to Arrow's paradox, as we've described it before. That is, if a candidate drops out, you may change your approval. Suppose it's the candidate you like the most, and one of the ones you approved of before, maybe you decide, well, I'll approve of another, or I'll do some other change of that type. Or, you know, you might go the reverse, because of absence of presence of candidates. And, look, to prove this, the Society for Social Choice and Welfare, which consists of the experts in this area, use approval voting. And what is the description they give? They say, this is the 2007 ballot, you can vote for any number of candidates by ticking the appropriate box. Absolutely no meaning attached. So the question is, what does a voter have in mind when he gives a tick? Because if you're going to add them, they should have the same thing in mind. Otherwise, there's no meaning. 
And in particular, the Social Choice and Welfare Society did an experiment in their election in 1999 where they had three candidates and they asked people voting to give their orders of preference. 52 did. More people voted, but they didn't give their, their order of preference. And on these 52 ballots, one ballot gave two ticks, 49 gave one tick, two ballots gave zero ticks. Our conclusion is, yes, this is a, no, we don't point fingers, don't point fingers. Uh, uh, our conclusion is, these votes were purely strategic. Obviously, these are people in the business here. They are, they are thinking, you know, they were voting and uh, this, is, this is their professional um, interest. Uh, but, so, in some sense, what did they do? They just voted in the usual way. And incidentally, they did not, according to this, according to the data that is there, they did not elect the Condorcet candidate that did exist. Okay. Um, now, it makes no sense. Here is another proof, if you wish. In, on March 22, 2007, there was a polling uh, poll took place in which two questions were asked. One was, would each of these candidates be a good president of France? And the answers were yes and no, according to what you see here. By who, yes, 60%, Sarkozy, 59%, Royal, 49%, Le Pen, 12%. And the no's, they don't add up to 100-something, wish to give them an answer. But then look at the other question. Do you personally wish each of these candidates to win the presidential elections? Well, these are two extremely different questions. And, of course, they got very different results. Now, the one on the right is more of a relative question. The one on the rest, left is a more absolute. But, you know, here's, again, an instance where it makes no sense to add up votes because you don't know what, the, what, what did that voter have in mind when he gave his tip. Now, in the majority judgment view, every grade, so a tick, should have a definition. A ticker and a non-tick. But two grades are completely unnatural. To evaluate a candidate for president or any other reasonable office on simply pass, fail, good, bad, approved, disapproved scale is, seems to us, totally insufficient. Uh, and it does, certainly does not allow voters to make, uh, to express themselves. Now you're going to see that this comes up in our experiments also because I come back now to using our database and studying well, what happens with approved voting. And well, here is what happens. What we did to do these numbers is the following thing. We assumed that all candidates, a, a candidate who got a good, a very good, or an excellent. And this is on the first line. Approval voting with greater or equal to good means that we assume that any voter who gave either a good, a very good, or an excellent would have given an approved to that candidate. And otherwise not. Okay? 
And look what you get. By who getting elected with, I mean, uh, winning 8,250 times out of the possible 10,000. So what were we doing here? We're taking random samples of 101 and then computing what happens with approval voting under that condition. What happens when you do it not with good, very good, excellent, but you do it with very good and excellent, then by who wins 1,000 times? So that's really very, very less. Uh, so again, you know, same question, rhetorical now, totally rhetorical. What does a voter have in mind when she or he has to take? Now, strategy and the <clears throat> in our experiment, by who majority gauge was what you see here? He had a good plus, so why I was good minus. And you can ask the question: uh, Could strategic voting have made YL the winner with the majority judge? And the answer is yes, sure. And a lot of people judge. But on the other hand, if those voters who graded YL above Baihu did as is postulated in what I will show in a second, they would have failed. So, in this table what you see on, first of all, the first column, 2.8% of the voters rated why unacceptable and by who either poor or to reject. 6.3% rated why excellent and by who very good. Okay, 6.9% rated why very good and by who good. And this is the entire list of the voters who preferred Royal to by who. And that's the way they're distributed. Now, we the strategy here is that we assume on the part of the voters is the following. First of all, the 2.8% didn't want to change. They didn't like either candidate. So no, they, they were not motivated. So, so they don't. They didn't do it. Then those voters where there was a difference in one grade, we assume a third of them made the choice to change. When they differed by at least two grades, they two thirds made the change. Okay. Notice that the people at the bottom, of which they're 9.2 percent, they can do nothing. Uh, they can neither raise Huayal's grade nor lower by whose. That's the game, right? You want to lower by whose, raise by whose. Also notice, take, for example, the second line. Well, no, let's take this third line. Uh, somebody who gave Huayal a very good is totally incapable of raising her grade. Her grade was 39.4, good minus, etc. They're already in the 39.4, so they can't do anything more. So the only, they can, the only thing they can do is to lower by who. But it doesn't pay them to lower by who beyond acceptable, because it won't make any difference to go beyond. So <coughs> there's no motivation to go all the way down, because as soon as you get down to acceptable, we're looking at the third row, well, you've already affected the, um, you've already affected by who's 30.6, you've made it go up, and if you go down further, you don't change it at all. And of course, this is symmetric, it goes both ways. 
So this is showing a voter who can raise or lower one candidate's grade, cannot lower or raise the other. And again, as the polls estimated the 30% to be the uh, strategic votes which did not go along with convictions. So this is about this more clearly. And but with this, I won't give you the computation, but if you do this, you come out with two grades and by rule remains the winner. So this is really very stable. Now you will not have seen any of these tables. I showed you two, several corresponding tables before, but they're not exactly the same, but they have exactly the same feeling to them. And here what we're doing is we're comparing the methods and comparing the manipulability. There are 10,000 random samples of 101 were taken from all the ballots. Given, oh, this is uh, false, given that there is a unique winner and a unique runner-up. Strategy one I described before, of all those voters who grade a grade to be two levels above A change to give B the highest possible and A the lowest possible. Strategy two, 30% of those boys who gave a higher grade to B than to A give A B the highest and A the lowest. And now what happens? The number of successful strategic manipulations in these two cases are, as you see, uh, point summing always by far the highest, majority judgment always the lowest. Condorcet, incidentally, uh, when you when it's Condorcet, it's not it, the only reason that it can be forced to be Condorcet. You force it to be a Condorcet cycle, and so it shows the importance of the, of the, of the cycle involved, but, uh, uh, well, okay. Let me go on with this a little more. Uh, this is, again, exactly the same table, except that now we're doing it on the basis of the representative ballots, and you see we get exactly the same kind of behavior. Um, that where the majority judgment is more, uh, more robust, uh, except for uh, in the case of the Condorcet in strategy two, but again, remember, Condorcet in strategy two, I mean, this is, you're, you're having to force a cycle, and that's perhaps harder to do. Now, lastly, to compare the message, a couple of minutes here. Uh, we, as I said the other day, let's see, we um, were able to use the information to place the candidates on a left to right spectrum by who in the middle. Um, now, uh, when this is the case, it's clear that Condos and Borda winners are usually the centrist candidate, uh, and the, the data seems to confirm this that the methods are, these methods are very strongly biased in favor of the Senate. So I have four tables and then I'm done. And here are all the methods we've talked about. Uh, ordered essentially, not quite, essentially, by least favorable to by who the center and most favorable to by who the center. Though you'll see there is a a hitch on the border and point something at the bottom 
and also approval voting with greater or equal to good. There, but there's a reason for leaving this because other numbers are, are stronger now than here. And this, these samples were taken when only three candidates are running against each other. Okay, so we looked at the ballots and used only the information concerning the three candidates. And uh, in that case, you get this uh, this uh, this lined up, and you notice that first past the post, very severe on the centrist. Two past the post, a little less so. Approval voting, less so. Approval voting with a very only very good and excellent, less so. Then majority judgment with somewhere in the middle, and then Condorcet and so on. It's going to be, this is exactly the same, except now we're taking 12 instead of three candidates. And you'll see, you see here, borders shoot up in favor of the centrist, because whenever there are a lot of candidates, that centrist is going to be second or third or fourth all the time, and he's just going to pile up lots of points and win. And that's, you know, wins almost 9,559 out of 10,000 samples. That's quite a lot of wins. Majority judgment, of course, is fairly stable. It's not to be by what Cleaver says it's going to be. And otherwise, you get the same sort of behavior. Um, now, this now is the same, except 201 ballots chosen instead of 100. Uh, that, again, now here, it's three candidates. Now you see why point summing and uh, is, is, is really very, very favorable to the center. Um, so qualitatively, you're getting about the same sort of result. And now, go back to 12 and then look at what happens to Borden. Oops. It shoots right up to almost 10,000. Uh, and otherwise, the other thing, and, and point something is way up there. Approval with good or above is way up there as well. Uh, and um, well, that is the final uh, table. And of course, that we can go back to any of the tables anybody wants to look at and discuss. phrases that meant enough to voters to know what they meant. Because they knew about them since they were children. They were greater than them. School grades. School grades. Uh, school grades. They were school grades. Yeah, this is school grading. That's why. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, but in a sense, I mean, excellent, I mean, the, the terms are... It's, in in French, it's not excellent because it's, it, you know, excellent is, does not bring forth many votes. In French, it's très, très bien. 
très bien, bien, assez bien. The problem with assez bien is that there's no good English translation. So we put as a trans, uh, translation excellent and did it in that way. That, that was much, that's more congenial. I think had we added an extra grade which was excellent, très bien, the excellence would have been, you know, just ex very small numbers. As it was, that, as you saw, the, the, ex the excellence in English now were um, used the least sparingly. I mean, the most sparingly. The least used grades. But when you're electing a president, I guess the question is whether you, uh, you know, I, I use the term excellent in comparison with the best president France has ever had, or with the possible presidents that could be elected at this point in time. Well, that, given all that's a good, uh, that's a nice idea. So I think. And this could be a very good way of, yeah. of trying to we should have explain a grades. Yes. Perhaps uh, I will find that president excellent before, but others no. Yes. I think giving names to, to the, for example, De Gaulle. De Gaulle uh, it should be, for example, excellent. But perhaps some person, uh, if, I don't know, if the person that said De Gaulle. Oh, the, the, the French left detested De Gaulle. <laughs> yes. At the time, at the time, at the time. It should be objective, <laughs> so that's the problem. It should have an objective description of what is everything. I couldn't hesitate to say too much because I haven't fully taken on board all the points and I'm not a mathematician. But I've really been rather disappointed there have been more about some of the other electoral systems and voting systems because uh, again, I don't know all the details of those, but I've had experience of voting in multi-member, single transferable vote systems where you have your one vote, one person. And the advantages and the clarity, though a lot of people say that's still quite difficult and you've got to work out the quota, but I've heard nothing from what you've said that's convinced me of the advantages of what you're describing compared with what I've participated in and what I'm rather rusty now, but I have been thoroughly convinced of great advantages because in multi-member electorates, you have a huge advantage, I believe, of having a choice as a voter because most of your parties put up a range of candidates because they're not going to get all their candidates in, but they will put up a number. So you have a choice as a voter between male and female candidates you have a choice between the different perspectives of people, which is very nice if you don't perhaps want somebody who's pre-selected by a political party, and you have no choice in whether you want a green person or, as I say, a whole wide range. You also have a great advantage with somebody who's rather like can use the system if you think that the uh, individual candidate has a choice, and you can give your vote without wasting it to support your sort of independent candidate, but you know it will go through to your second or your third as the vote is transferred. Now, I find, and I'm very, very aware of what I think of very considerable advantages of that choice, and that sort of, I think, much easier to understand voting system. I would have really liked you to have compared and talked more, because, yeah. as I say, I've come away not at all convinced but the advantages of what you're talking about. But you're, I think you're mixing, you're mixing things up. But they're voting systems. No, 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 you're mixing things up. 
You're mixing things up in the sense that this is not, we're not talking, we're not talking about simply electing one person. We're electing a dozen, period. Okay? Let me finish. That's the first point. So we're not looking at, this is not addressing at all the question of proportional representation. That's point number one. Point number two, if you look at the single transparable vote, what you do in the single transparable vote is you've got to put down a list of the candidates. And again, I want to, we're limiting this to one candidate. We're not looking at many candidates. We haven't discussed that at all and we're not addressing that at all. Okay? What happens, for example, in Australia? You get, we've studied this during the system, you get, say, 12 candidates running for one seat. And you apply the, they have a special, a way of doing the single transparable vote. There are various ways of doing it. I know there is, and I'm not talking about the majority way in Australia. There are variations. There are, but there's a multiple candidate variation that they use in the Senate. But for the House, they're only using one member constituency. We're talking about electing one person. Now, look at that system. That system is one hell of a lot more complicated than our system. It's just that we're more used to it. Furthermore, it has, what it permits the voter to do is simply write down an order of preference. We can test that that is a reasonable thing to do. And instead, in Australia, it's quite clear the country itself admits it's not a reasonable thing to do because when they come to Senate elections, where they have, maybe have to grant 75 candidates, then they can take and choose, let the party decide what the order will be. And they only take, you know, one place to choose, say, some party's list, which is 75 long, and puts all the candidates, because they all have to be there. And, of course, that becomes a great manipulative negotiation that starts ahead of time between the parties. Now, the other thing is, in Australia, the single transferable vote, first of all, has some very bad properties. The worst being that you, somebody might push a candidate up in their list and cause him to lose. That is true. You can show that. But the other thing is, it's not transparent. If you look at the data in Australia, you never, you don't, there's no way of checking that the system has been carried out honestly, because you don't have the data on which to check. I would dispute quite a lot of the points that you're making. As I say, there are variations. I'm not talking about exactly the system that you're talking about, but where you have a single transferable vote. As I say, I'm sorry that, if you think I've misunderstood what you're saying, but I actually thought some of the points you were making were much more applicable to wider electoral systems. It may be, but we don't know how to do it. 